podcast, where we promulgate that your physical, psychological, and financial health are your true sources of wealth that must be safeguarded and optimized to achieve long-lasting happiness. Here, we'll discuss tactics on how you may self-actualize to reach the pinnacle of authentic masculinity by embracing true libertarian principles, arming yourself with red pill knowledge, as well as implementing the most up-to-date holistic health biohacks to optimize your health. Stop being a blue pill sheep, being led to slaughter by big government and the court system. Become an awakened man. Here's your host, Gregory. Hello, everybody. This is Gregory, and welcome back to another episode of The Awakened Man. I hope you're doing well today. Today, we're going to go down the road of suffering and talking about suffering, in particular, redemptive suffering. Now, today, it's going to be a little religious. You know, we have a couple episodes on religion in the past, why you should be chaste and celibate, and and we have some other ones. And I'm not going to get it too mired in in deep Catholic and Orthodox philosophy, but I think this is an important episode because we talk about with MGTOW how it's to optimize your life, right? We always think it's about women. It's not about women. It's about purging your demons, working on yourself, and so forth. And to me, one of the most important tentacles of MGTOW is your faith, your faith in God. Because when you have faith in God, your life honestly is better. And a lot of the deep philosophical questions are answered or at least answered better than if you're an atheist. And one of the classics is going to be, why do we suffer? What's the point of suffering? So we're going to talk about that today. The reason I'm doing this episode is because I have neurotic insomnia. This is one of the crutches, the the, the burdens that I carry that I offer up to Christ. I, the last six years... Uh, and this actually started because of of my ex-wife. Uh, I can go through periods where I get 30 minutes of sleep to about two, two and a half hours of sleep a night. And this can go on forever. And a lot of it has to do with just being a neurotic person. My mind can't turn off. It's just always on. And you fixate on stuff. And you're neurotic. Like Woody Allen, you know, is, is a classic kind of neurotic type. And with neurotics, especially with neurotic insomnia, you cannot get to sleep unless like a hundred things are checked off on a checklist in your mind. The the temperature's got to be this. It's got to be this dark. You have to go for your walk. You have to take this vitamin. You have to take this pill. You have to take this bath. You have to do this. Your your blanket's got to be like this. The fan's got to be like this. You need white noise. It's just, it's a mental prison. But right now, and I've controlled it pretty well, in particular the last, I don't know, eight, nine months. But I've, 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 I'm back. It's back. <laughs> Over Naturopathic Earth, I have an ongoing uh, blog series called The Sleep, in Crom- the Sleep Insomnia Chronicles. And uh, I think it's like a 10-part series. And really, I haven't, I haven't put a new uh, entry for like a year or so. But the last two nights, I've only slept for two hours. And my body is used to it. See, the, the thing is this. A lot of people will tell you, Gregory, you need to take um, a benzo. We have an episode here on the problems of benzos. To me, and anytime I ask people who take drugs for sleep, whether it be Ambien, Lunesta, Trazodone, I ask them, okay, wait, what happens if you forgot your pill? They're like, I wouldn't be able to sleep. And I say, exactly. You're already a slave to that drug. And 
The other thing is, I find from my experience, the days where I am taking benzos, because remember, benzodiazepines like Xanax, Ativan, clonazepam, these these drugs, roofies, they're, they're sedatives, they're hypnotic sedatives. They make you tired. And my experience is when I take those or Benadryl or whatever, I'm actually more sleepy the next day than when I'm like on a five-day run of only getting three hours of sleep. Anyways, my point is this. I offer it up to God. Now, in the, in the Catholic and Orthodox world, the, the old Christian faith, the ones that were created by Jesus Christ, we have this idea of redemptive suffering. And the idea of redemptive suffering, I'll try to just kind of simplify it, is we offer up our suffering, whether it be you're in chronic pain or your mom just died or you lost a job or you would have broke your arm, whatever suffering, you just got divorce raped, your kids, you, know, you don't see them, you offer them up to Christ. Because any suffering we have is a scintilla of the suffering that Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. He was scourged, had to carry heavy lumber, he's nailed to the cross, he's suffocating on the cross for three hours. And so our suffering brings us closer to Christ's suffering. A little. It's not even close to what he what he did so we would have a chance to go to heaven. But that's what we do. We offer it up. So you might hear this term in the in the Greek and and, and Catholic world. You know, we you offer it up, you know, when something bad, offer it up. And what does that mean? So it's redemptive suffering. You offer it up to Christ. The other thing is is in the Orthodox and Catholic world, certainly in the Catholic world, and certainly in the traditional Catholic world, we believe that. Suffering that you do that you offer up to Christ helps the souls in purgatory. So purgatory is a belief that's existed in in the ancient faiths for since the early church fathers. You know, understand that like a lot of Protestants don't know this that, that there's writings of the apostles of the apostles, Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr, Eusebius. These are apostles of the apostles. We have their writings, so we know what the early church was like in the second century A.D. And it was. I hate to tell you, Protestants, very Catholic. But one of the things was purgatory. So purgatory is just a belief that when you die, you have your what we call the particular judgment. When you die, your soul is judged. And then later when Jesus Christ returns, your soul and your body are reunited. And then you're judged again, but you're going to the same place that you're judged in your particular judgment. And in the particular judgment, you're going to one of three places. Heaven, if you don't have any stain of sin on you. And again, we don't have to use scriptural references because Catholics... You know, we created the Bible, but the Bible in itself, sola scriptura, is a nonsensical belief because nowhere in the Bible does it say the Bible has to be the sole source of authority. Also, if they understand the Bible didn't come with a table of contents, it didn't float from the sky. Church councils created the Bible, decided which books were going to be in it. Those were Catholic councils, of course, because there was no other church existing at the time. And, and that by that point, the, the Orthodox hadn't separated for political reasons. So, nothing impure enters the kingdom of heaven. You see this in uh, the book of Revelation. So, you either go to heaven, like if you have no no uh, attachment to sin. So, in other words, for like men, that means you don't watch porn, for example, or you don't lust, or you don't practice envy or greed, right? And it's very hard. 
Then you have the, the people who go to purgatory. Purgatory is essentially a washing machine. It's a place where people who are going to be saved eventually go. So when you are judged to go to purgatory, you're happy. You're happy because you know you're, you're going to go to heaven eventually. Now, the length of purgatory, nobody knows. There's a verse in Thessalonians about being consumed by fire. That way you could be clean. But nobody really knows. You know, there's been some saints that have been there. Uh, but some theologians like uh, Aquinas and others have thought, okay, maybe it's a third of your temporal life. Some, be- some people believe it's just a, a flash, just a quick flash. We really don't know. But what we know is that there is some sort of suffering because we have, we've sinned. But eventually you go to heaven. And then the third place, of course, is hell. Once you're in hell, you never leave hell. You cannot pray for the, the souls in hell. They're, they're in hell forever. Now, you can pray for the souls in purgatory, and the souls in purgatory can pray for you. The souls in purgatory, we call them the church suffering. There's three There's three churches. There's the church militant. That's us because we're fighting. It's a spiritual battle. Those who are alive, it's a church militant. Those in heaven are called the church triumphant because they're already with God in the beatific vision. And then you have the church suffering, those in purgatory. Now, they're suffering, but eventually they're very happy. Now, you can pray for the souls in purgatory, and this is one of the, the concepts behind people praying for the dead. Now, the praying for the dead goes back to Maccabees, Second Maccabees. That was one of the books that Martin Luther got out of the Protestant, removed from the Protestant Bible, but it was in the Septuagint, the original Greek version of the Old Testament that the Jews used. And there's a saying, and, and, and Maccabees is all about the Greeks infiltrated the Jewish world. This was like right after Alexander the Great, and so they're trying to purge the the land of Israel uh, of these Greek influences. So the Maccabees brothers kind of topple. They, they create a revolution, and they kick out the Greeks. So one of the Maccabees brothers finds some dead people, and he tells his soldiers, you know, pray for the, pray for the dead so they can be with heaven. So that's a scriptural thing. But again, we don't need the scriptural. We, we have magisterial teaching, and we have ch- ch- church tradition. Both of them have always taught purgatory. We're not confined by the where in the Bible does it say fill in the blank. So, going back to redemptive suffering. So, one of the beliefs is the when you are suffering something, you offer it to Christ because it brings you closer to Christ, and also you offer it to the souls in purgatory. And I know this is a very hard belief for Protestants, but... When you offer things up like fasting, prayer, sacrificing, suffering, it can expedite their time there. So with redemptive suffering, like what I do with my insomnia, you know, I offer it up to the souls in purgatory, that particular soul there, especially all those like Protestants when they die, none of those people pray for their 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 loved ones. Catholics in the Catholic world, we kind of have that wired into us. You know, pray for, pray for your, your dead dad. Pray for your aunt. Because we don't know where they're at. We really don't know. You know, it's not like an angel comes to us and says, da-da-da, they're in heaven. You don't have to pray for them anymore. The other beauty is the communion of saints. So we're all part of the mystical body of Christ. So the people in heaven can pray for you. They can intercede on your behalf to Jesus Christ. Of course, the saints can, the Virgin Mary, St. Joseph. And the souls of purgatory can. So we're all like praying. And of course, people who are alive will pray for you. You ask for people who are alive to pray for you all the time. So all these people are praying. It's awesome. So you offer it up. Now, I mean, there are some biblical verses that, that we can use. Like there's 2 Corinthians 1st. Chapter 1, 6 through 7. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are 
comforted. It is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will share in our comfort. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, 9, 12, 15. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. So death is at work in us, but life in you, for it is all for your sake. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation in Christ Jesus with its eternal glory. So look, redemptive suffering helps me. It helps me kind of give a spin on why, why I suffer. And again, my suffering is nothing compared to what other people are suffering. The other thing is, why why do we suffer? God has a grand plan that we just don't understand. You you look at salvation history of the Old Testament, right? So it's it's all the same. It's funny. God God does something, people piss on it. God creates the um, you know the world, the universe, everything. Then uh, right before Noah, they're all sinning, so He destroys the world. And then if you look at the patriarchs. Right. So if you look at uh, Abraham, Isaac, look at look at Lot, Abraham's nephew, Sodom and Gomorrah, they're all sinning. And then you certainly see it with Moses and them in the desert. They're just whining all the time. If we would have known it would have been like this, we would have stayed in, in Egypt. And then I love it where, where God just like, okay, I'm just going to send some, some serpents. I'm just going to send some serpents. So he sends serpents to bite the Israelites that are in heaven, or that are, in, I'm sorry, in, e- in Egypt. And, <laughs> and then they're like, oh, we're sorry, we're so sorry, we're so sorry. So God tells Moses to make a staff, and then it cures him. You know, they're complaining, oh, there's no water, Moses, why'd you do this? And then, all through Judges, but certainly in the later, in the later monarchy, so after Solomon, it's all, if you read the prophets, just read them all, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, not so much Daniel, all the minor prophets, they're all the same. Israel's turned away from God. Israel is sinning. They're, they're worshiping idols. They've turned their back. It, it's all the same, right? And so eventually God's like, okay, I still love you. you know, we still love you. God loves you. So he sends the Babylonians to come and, and, and take over Israel. And so they're 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 captured. The Assyrians take the northern kingdom. I know this is really Bible nerdy, but the the main the main tribes get take to Babylon to, to Babylon, and so of course they're like, "Woe is me!" Because now they're essentially slaves again. But in some ways they deserved it, right? Because they turned their back on God. But through that, then the Persians come and liberate them, and they get to go back to the Holy Land with Nehemiah rebuilding the wall, and then, and then eventually come to Christ a couple hundred years later. And so all of that was needed. All that suffering, right? Which you could argue was justified. You could argue was justified. The the being sent to Babylon was justified because we turned our back on God, kind of like what we're doing now, aborting babies and, and and not living a virtuous life. But my point is this: we don't understand God's plan. We don't understand God's plan. If you look at that, look look at the story of Job, right? Look at the story of of uh, Jonah. The, we don't understand God's plan. So when they're stuck in Babylon, 
and forced exile, they're all, woe is me, lamenting, oh God, we're so sorry, we're so sorry. But ultimately from that comes a greater good. And if you look at the suffering that's been in your life, ultimately, when you have time separating you from it, you realize that some sort of greater good came from it. So God allows suffering. God can allow suffering because for some reason he thinks there's a greater good. I use the example all the time. Tea break. And this is a bad example because I'm completely anti-vax. But you you vaccinate a four-year-old. And four-year-old doesn't know what's going on. It's like, oh my God, that pointy thing's coming at me. Oh no, I'm crying. And but the but the parents know why there has to be a modicum of suffering for a greater good. That's to you know, quote unquote, protect the kid, you know, vaccinate the kid, whatever. But it's kind of the same thing. We are the child, right? God is omniscient, he's all-knowing. We don't know shit. We are the created, not the creator. We don't understand God's plan. We'll never understand God's plan. It's not like an angel is going to come down to you January 1st of every year. This is the plan that God has for you for this, the next 12 months. No. What does Jesus tell Thomas? You know, when Thomas doesn't believe that he's been resurrected, and he's like, until Jesus comes, I can put my finger in his wounds. And then eventually he shows up, and Jesus shows up to him and says, blessed are those who believe who have not seen. Right? That's what's hard for atheists, right? Oh, well, I'm never going to see Jesus. I'm never going to see an angel. But my point is, God allows suffering. There's typically a greater good. Look, look at from divorce ways. Many of you were miserable in marriage. And now you're happier five, six years. Maybe not five months later, but five, six, ten years. You're in a better place. And certainly lots of times your ex-wife is. Like my ex. My ex makes me laugh. She's like, oh, you know, I hate you for everything. I'm like, well, if we didn't get together and we didn't break up, you wouldn't found the man of your dreams, who she's with now. So again, it's kind of the same thing. We have to go through tumult. We have to go through suffering, whatever that suffering is, to reach something bigger. You've, you've heard those, those people who lose their legs early on, and of course they're in despair, and then later on they're giving inspirational speeches all around the world. It's the same thing. Sometimes we can't see the forest from the trees. And so my point of this episode is just to personalize what I go through every day with my insomnia and how, look, I'll be honest, my insomnia the last five years has wrecked so many relationships in my life. There's a certain amount of, of, of compassion at the beginning, but then people go through compassion fatigue and they can't help you. You can't cure necessarily insomnia. It's just something that I have. And I take a certain amount of comfort, not that I, not that I court it or want it, the insomnia, but I take a certain amount of comfort knowing that I can offer it up. It brings me closer to the suffering of Jesus Christ. And I know that I'm helping souls in purgatory get out to the point where if I die, well, if when I die and I'm being judged, I pray that I will meet some of those souls that I liberated. And I'm going to say, thank you, Albert, for praying for us. Christ's, his love brings blessings to me, but it brings meaning to my life. And this is why I always exhort the atheist. Life without God is an empty, 
hedonistic life. So much to the point where, of course, all you guys will deny this. So much to the point where you have to fill that void with another religion. And what's that religion? Atheism, veganism, socialism, crossfitism. You fill it with another void because we are wired because we're created by a, a, a God to believe in him. And when you take God out of your life, in more cases than not, your life is not better. Now, the atheists will say, but church controls you. You know, the, the old tropes. They're just looking out for your money. You don't have to go to a mega church which makes you tithe. Tithing's not even scriptural, I hate to tell you. Catholics and Orthodox, we're like the worst at donating money. But just go to a church where they don't know you. You just go pray to God. And prayers are basic, right? Thank you, God, for everything. Praise you, God. We love you, God. Thank you, God. But it comes to suffering, like for atheists. How, how do you make sense of suffering when you're an atheist? How do you make sense of it? So you can see how atheists have a nihilistic view of life in the world. What's the meaning of life? It's pointless. We're born, we grow, you know, we pursue pleasures, maybe we pursue knowledge, but eventually we're going to have suffering, right? All your parents are going to die. You're going to see death in your life. Your body's going to break down. People in your life might suffer tragedy. You might lose a child. How do you make sense of that tragedy? When you're religious, it gives you a little more comfort than if you're an atheist. Because if heaven forbid, and you've seen the, the interviews of my kids, if you scroll back, one of my children dies, I'll be devastated, of course. But I can take comfort knowing, A, they're in heaven because they haven't sinned because they're so young. And B, you know what? Those kids could have grown up and sinned. Those kids could have grown up and turned away from God. Those, those kids could have grown up and eventually have gone to hell. So in the long run, again, it's hard to see it at the time, but in the long run, maybe it was better for them to die young because now they're guaranteed salvation than to grow older and perhaps go to hell. Now, some of you, the non-atheists, the, the Protestants will say, nobody goes to hell. Well, then you're contradicting the words of Christ because Christ says it pretty clear. The road to heaven is narrow. The road to hell is wide. So no. And but it's at that point, it's like, oh, but no, now we're not scripturalists. We're not literalist. <laughs> I love what you pick and choose. Christ is very clear. Not everybody's going to heaven, brother. And we kind of already know who's going to hell, right? The unrepentant sinner. Those who sin and turn their back on God, even to the moment of their death. This is why one of the things of the Great Commission is for us to preach the word because we don't want people to go to hell. Even I don't want my enemies to go to hell. Jesus even says you got to forgive and love your enemies. It's easy to forgive and love your friends. you got to love and forgive your enemies. I don't want anybody to go to hell. So our job is to exhort and preach the word and then eventually shake the dust off the sandals. If they don't want to hear it, that's their choice. And let the power of God work. Because conversion cannot be done through you. Like proselytization. If somebody wants to convert, there's really nothing you can do. It's really the grace of the Holy Spirit that's going to work through them. Now, you might be a vehicle to that grace, but you see some mega Protestant types are just like pushing and pushing and pushing. And look, because they believe in the gospel and they believe in the idea of, of the Great Commission, right? We have to share the news. But 
you ain't going to do it alone. It's it's the working and stirring of the Holy Spirit that's going to make these people come back to Christ. Like, for example, like you could listen to, to my messages here. Some of you have fallen away from your, your, your faith because a lot of you were raised in some sort of Christian faith. And it might stir something or the, that, that the Holy Spirit will work and stoke that. But I'm not going to convert you. Certainly, we know with family members, they're the hardest to convert, right? Because you have baggage with them. But either way, my point is this, guys. Suffering is coming. We all are going to have it. You might be 20 years old and think, I'm going to be young forever. Your family's going to die. Think of like the 80-year-olds, man. Everybody dies before them, right? All their family's dead. Their friends die. They're in pain. They're dealing with loneliness, despair, whatever it is. How do you make sense of that? How do you not turn to the bottle? How do you not turn to drugs, self-destructive behavior? Just remember, you offer it up to Christ. Christ loves you. Christ died for you. Read the Psalms. The Psalms are all about God loving us, even when we turn away from him. We are loved, and God is patient. Look at the prodigal son, the 99 sheep, the one that's lost. I mean, there's tons of parables of this. God loves us. But one of the things we can do for suffering is offer it up to Christ, because Christ Loved us so much. He took the cross. And one of the things I love, the last thing here, you look at the words that Jesus says when he's on the cross. And my favorite thing, you know, he, he tells John to watch Mary, Mary to watch John. But my, my favorite thing he says is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I, I love that verse because God is, or Jesus, I should say, is half God, half man. It's the hypostatic union. He's, it's the incarnation. So he's fully man, but fully God. But in that moment, and there's a couple of moments you see that in scriptures, like when, when Lazarus dies, he cries, Jesus wept. And then when he's in the garden, right, he's crying blood, you know, pass this cup of suffering from me, God, but if it's your will, I will do it, right? That's the that's second fiat. Look at Mary. I'm the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to that word. When she finds out she's pregnant and she hasn't had sex. But Jesus obedience to his father i don't want to i don't want to drink of this cup of suffering but i'll do it because i i want I, I, i'd have to do it and i want to do it but in the moment he's dying and he's scourged and bleeding and suffocating on that cross he has a moment of what humanity and this is christ not turning his back on god a moment of humanity why have you forsaken me my god and I don't know about you, but I take comfort in that. I think of our Lord Jesus Christ, full God, full man, in the most moment of vulnerability and pain, he utters those words. And those words are so human. They're so human. He's in the midst of the most excruciating pain. And for a moment, he questions the Father. Why have you done this? Why have you turned your back on me? And there's such beauty to that. There's such beauty to that. So when you think Christ is some lofty figure that you can't relate to, no, my brothers, he was human. He laughed. He farted. (laughs) He urinated. He didn't sin, of course. He was sinless. But take comfort the next time that you suffer because it's coming. 
that Christ suffered and Christ uttered those words and take comfort. So the next time you're suffering, offer up your suffering to Christ to get closer to Christ and offer it to the souls who need your prayers and sacrificing and fasting to get out of purgatory faster and into heaven. Guys, post an honest review. If you don't like me talking about religion, post an honest review. It takes you two seconds. I would appreciate it. It helps the algorithm so we can get this message out to help other men. There is a link for PayPal in the episode notes to donate if you appreciate my content. Donate $5 or whatever. Also, there's a link to Naturopathic Earth. Uh, go there. And if you want to up at the tab, there's different tabs, recipes and so forth. There's one for the Sleep Insomnia Chronicles if you want to read some of my personal stories with that. Also, the my two books are on the right side, Revelations of a Weight Loss Warrior, Confessions of an Obese Child. Click on that. Takes it to Amazon. Buy them there. Or whatever you buy on Amazon, we get a 2% commission. No expense to you. Contact me via clarity.fm if you want some help from the Red Pill perspective. And lastly, as always, please subscribe and post an honest review for not just The Awakened Man, but the female holistic health apothecary and confessions. Until next time, take care. God bless. Thank you for listening to The Awakened Man Podcast. Find us on Facebook at The Awakened Man Podcast page. Subscribe and post an honest review on Apple Podcasts and consider donating to our crowdfunding account. And remember, freedom is better than needle. Until next time.